Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of the sports medicine lecture series. Today we're going to talk about the only ligament that our arthroplasty colleagues seem to give a damn about, the posterior cruciate ligament. Staying with our standard structure, we'll talk about some pertinent anatomy, go over a typical history and physical examination following an injury, and talk about possible treatment options. As always, I'll try to be comprehensive but brief, stressing the testable points, but including some of the broader points that you might find useful in a clinical setting. So first, what is the posterior cruciate ligament and what does it do? I know this stuff gets repetitive, but repetition is the key to adult learning, so just bear with me. Like the anterior cruciate ligament, the posterior cruciate ligament is a dense, collagenous, intracapsular, extrasynovial structure. It originates at the posterior tibial sulcus below the level of the articular surface and inserts on the anterolateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle. It's larger than the ACL, about 38 millimeters long and 13 millimeters in diameter, and capable of resisting about 2,500 to 3,000 newtons of stress posteriorly directed. It consists of two bundles, the anterolateral and posterior medial. Remember the PAL, P-A-L, posterior cruciate, anterolateral. If you can remember that, you can deduce the rest of the cruciate bundles for both the posterior cruciate ligament and anterior cruciate ligament. The anterolateral bundle gets tight in flexion and is the most important structure for posterior stability at 90 degrees of flexion. The PCL is also associated with the meniscofemoral ligaments. The ligament of Humphrey lies anterior to the ligament and the ligament of Risberg lies posterior. Remember that they're in alphabetical order. H in front of W, Humphrey's in front of Risberg. The meniscal femoral ligaments run from the posterior horn of the lateral meniscus and insert into the substance of the PCL. Like the ACL, it receives its blood supply from the middle geniculate artery. Alright, so how do PCL injuries present? Two clinical scenarios seem to constantly come up, but they have an underlying theme which is a posteriorly directed force on the proximal tibia. The first frequently used mechanism of injury is that of a passenger involved in a motor vehicle collision that comes in with a knee effusion. They may or may not have a patella fracture bruising over the knee joint. The idea is, though, that they sustained a high-energy blow to the proximal tibia with a flexed knee. This is commonly called a dashboard injury. The second common scenario takes place after a fall onto a flexed knee with the foot in a plantar flexed position. Take a second and try to imagine yourself falling onto your knee with your foot in a fully plantar flexed position. You can imagine the force driving the proximal tibia posteriorly with the knee being hyperflexed. Now those are the common situation with isolated injuries. However, the PCL is also commonly injured along with the posterior lateral corner and during multiligamentous knee injuries following a knee dislocation. In the case of an isolated injury, many patients present with an effusion and pain, but literal or no instability, and you'll see that plays a significant role in our treatment choices. Alright, so let's talk about the physical exam during PCL injury. Question writers love the PCL physical exam questions. The PCL contributes to both varus and valgus and posterolateral rotatory stability at varying degrees of knee flexion, making it fun to throw half a dozen physical exam findings into the question stem to determine which structures are out. The standard and most accurate diagnostic test is the posterior drawer. First, remember that in a normal knee, the medial tibial plateau lies one centimeter anterior to the medial femoral condyle. In the posterior drawer test, the knee is flexed to 90 degrees and a posterior directed force is applied to the proximal tibia. The degree of posterior translation is what's used to quantify the injury. In grade 1, or partial tears, the proximal tibia remains anterior to the femoral condyle and will yield less than 5 millimeters of posterior translation. In grade 2, or complete isolated PCL injuries, the proximal tibia will be flush with the femoral condyles and yield 6 to 10 millimeters of posterior translation. 
Grade 3 injuries are usually associated with combined injuries, typically the posterior lateral corner. Examination of a grade 3 injury will show greater than 10 millimeters of translation, and the tibia will be posterior to the femoral condyles. If they give you this on exam, be suspicious for a more extensive injury. Remember that the PCL also contributes to varus and valgus stability at 0 degrees of flexion, along with the MCL and LCL. However, the MCL and LCL can be isolated when tested at 30 degrees of flexion. Therefore, if they give you a patient that is loose to varus and valgus stress at 0 and 30 degrees of flexion, you should be thinking that the PCL is involved. If they are loose at 30 degrees of flexion and stable at 0, then it is likely that the PCL is intact and it is an isolated medial or lateral collateral injury. The dial test has also been the subject of several test questions and is useful for evaluating the integrity of the posterior lateral corner. This test is performed with the patient either prone or supine. An external rotation force is applied to the tibia with the knee flexed to 30 and 90 degrees. If there is greater than 10 degrees of asymmetry, then it is positive at that flexion angle. The PCL contributes to posterior lateral rotatory stability or external rotation stability at 90 degrees of knee flexion. Therefore, if a patient shows increased external rotation at 30 degrees but is symmetric at 90 degrees, then you can suspect that the PCL is intact on that side and it is an isolated posterior lateral corner injury. However, if the patient shows increased external rotation at 30 and 90 degrees of knee flexion, then both the corner and posterior cruciate ligament may be disrupted. Other physical exams that you may encounter during exam questions are the posterior sag and the quad active test. The posterior sag sign is performed with the hips and knees flexed to 90 degrees while you support the ankle. As I've mentioned, in the normal knee, the tibia rests 10 millimeters anterior to the medial femoral condyle. A positive posterior sag sign is present if the proximal tibia shifts neutral in comparison to the uninjured side. In the quad active test, the patient's knee is flexed to 90 degrees and the foot is stabilized. The proximal tibia will rest in a sublux position. As the patient fires their quad, the tibia will translate anterior due to the anterior pull of the extensor mechanism. Alright, let's move on to some imaging studies. As always, the first test we will order are plane radiographs. AP and lateral x-rays will generally appear normal, however there are subtle clues that may suggest a PCL disruption. On a supine lateral x-ray, it may be possible to appreciate a posterior subluxation of the tibia relative to the femur. Furthermore, you can ask your radiologist to perform a lateral stress radiograph. This is taken with the knee flexed to 70 degrees while someone applies stress to the anterior tibia. The contralateral knee should also be assessed. A difference in posterior translation of the tibia indicates a PCL injury. A difference in translation of greater than 12 millimeters indicates a possible combined PCL and posterior lateral corner injury, which makes sense if you think back to the grade 3 classification discussed earlier. If the patient has a chronic PCL injury, plain radiographs may demonstrate media and patellofemoral compartment chondrosis. Finally, like an ACL, MRI can be performed to confirm your diagnosis. So now that we've made our diagnosis, it's time to consider possible treatment options. Treatment options are tailored both to the individual patient and the degree of instability. Non-operative management plays a more significant role with isolated PCL injuries, particularly with grade 1 and 2 injuries. Remember that these are the partial and complete isolated injuries. So how are patients non-operatively managed? Now, if you've lost your check rein to posterior translation and the tibia tends to sublux posteriorly, can you guess intuitively what muscle group you'd want to focus on strengthening during rehabilitation? The quadriceps. If the tibia is subluxing posteriorly, you focus on the quadricep and knee extensor strengthening, which will help to pull the tibia back anterior. Patients can expect to return to sport in two to four weeks. 
Some more significant grade three isolated injuries may warrant a short course of immobilization and extension, followed by limited range of motion and quadricep strengthening. All right, let's turn our attention now to possible operative interventions. First, who is it that we're considering as a candidate for surgical intervention? The basic tenets for operative indications are that the patient is grossly unstable or did the patient sustain a multiligamentous knee injury? With that in mind, three common indications jump out. Those with a multiligamentous knee injury, such as a PCL and ACL, a PCL and posterior lateral corner, or a PCL and grade 3 MCL or LCL, as this patient would be quite unstable to varus and valgus stress. Another indication for surgery are those with a bony avulsion injury resulting in grade 2 or 3 laxity. These patients will benefit from undergoing an open reduction in internal fixation of the bony fragment. Finally, consideration must be given to repair those with an isolated chronic PCL injury that results in a functionally unstable knee. Reconstruction is generally favored as primary repair of the ligament has not been shown to be successful. If the patient is going to undergo reconstruction of the torn PCL, then two popular techniques are the use of a tibial inlay method and the transtibial method. Allograft is typically used in most cases. However, there is considerable variation in the different allografts that are utilized. The results of reconstruction have not been quite as favorable as our outcomes with ACL reconstruction. Despite the graft or the technique, PCL reconstruction has a tendency to stretch out and lead to continual posterior laxity. Chronic PCL injury can result in a varus deformity with resultant medial and patellofemoral compartment degenerative changes, as mentioned earlier. When considering reconstruction, this malalignment must be addressed, as it can result in increased stress on a reconstructed graft. Most surgeons prefer to perform a medial open wedge high tibial osteotomy. Not only does this allow for the correction of the varus deformity, but we can also slightly increase the posterior tibial slope. This acts further to aid the PCL in preventing posterior translation of the tibia. Imagine the femoral condyle as a wheel and the tibial slope as the ground. If the ground is level, it is easy for the wheel to slide along it. Increasing the posterior slope is akin to creating a hill, making it more difficult for the wheel to slide forward or the ground to slide backwards. Bottom line is you want to do a medial opening wedge high tibial osteotomy to correct both the varus and increase the posterior tibial slope. Let's briefly discuss some of the techniques used for both and the testable information associated with them. The first reconstruction technique we'll talk about is the arthroscopic transtibial technique. This is done with your typical arthroscopic portals with the addition of a posterior medial portal to allow for adequate visualization of the tibial insertion site. The saphenous nerve is at risk during this portal placement. The portal is created by making an incision one centimeter proximal to the joint line just posterior to the medial collateral ligament. A 70 degree arthroscope can also aid in visualizing the posterior medial tibial insertion site. An important testable fact is during single bundle PCL reconstruction, what degree of knee flexion should the graft be tensioned in? The answer is at 90 degrees. Think back to the reason as to why this would be. The anterior lateral bundle is the strongest and most important structure for providing posterior stability with the knee at 90 degrees. It is also tight during flexion. So the idea is you're trying to recreate a well-tensioned anterior lateral bundle during the position, it would be maximally effective in a flexed knee. You can also perform an open PCL reconstruction using the tibial inlay technique. The surgical interval for this procedure is between the medial head of the gastroc and the semimembranosus. This is also the preferred technique for performing an open reduction internal fixation of an avulsed fragment. Can you think of any other pathologic process that also occurs in this layer between the semimembranosus and the medial head of the gastroc? A Baker cyst. 
If you see a question about a double bundle PCL reconstruction, it will generally be about when each graft gets tensioned. If you remember back to our brief biomechanical discussion about the PCL, and remember that the anterior lateral bundle is tightened flexion and the posterior medial bundle is tightened extension, it should be clear that these are also the positions during which you will tension the graft. Despite the elegance of the reconstruction technique, there has been no proven clinical advantage over the single bundle technique. No matter the technique utilized, one huge complication to avoid and to keep in mind is damage to the popliteal artery. The artery lies adjacent to the posterior capsule directly behind the PCL insertion, so your shiny, sharp drill bit should not go anywhere near this thing. During the tibial inlay technique, the screws used to fix the graft lie within 20 millimeters of the popliteal artery. Briefly, a few points on postoperative rehabilitation. First, unlike ACLs, these patients are initially immobilized in extension with great care to avoid any unnecessary posterior stress on the graft. Testable points on postoperative rehabilitation have been on what exercise to avoid and what to encourage. You can safely assume that any exercise that increases posterior directed force should be avoided, and any that strengthens anterior pull should be encouraged. Therefore, exercises like hamstring curls, which pull the tibia posteriorly, are appropriate during the postoperative period, while quadricep strengthening exercises, which pull the tibia anteriorly, are safe and should be encouraged. Alright, so that goes over most of the testable concepts for PCL injury and reconstruction. The next lecture will finish off our knee ligament injury section and address injuries to the MCL, LCL, and posterior lateral corner. It's a bit longer, but it will address a lot of useful knee anatomy in great detail. Thanks for listening.